Scripture today is Psalm 56. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, eager to take my life. On no account let them escape. In your anger, O God, bring down the nations. Record my lament. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Good morning. In our culture, we love revenge movies. A lot of movies have a revenge theme, but some that stand out in my thinking that I've seen, one is uh, Tombstone. You know, Wyatt Earp, his brother gets killed. Another brother gets injured, and so Wyatt goes after the cowboy's gang of a hundredfold, ends up wiping them all out. Very satisfying. The movie The Patriots, Benjamin Martin. Two of his sons are killed by the evil English officer. At the end of the movie, finally, he gets his revenge. The movie Gladiator. Maximus, the general, is turned against by the new evil emperor who kills his wife and son and wants to kill Maximus. Maximus ends up being sold as a slave, ends up as a gladiator. At the end of the movie, as a gladiator, he finally kills the evil emperor. Again, very satisfying. From a movie website, obviously not Christian, but listen to what it says. Revenge is one of our most primal instincts, the need to inflict suffering and punishment on those who have wronged us goes back to our days in the dark old caves because movies about turning the other cheek are a lot less interesting than movies about stabbing someone through the cheek. (laughs) There have been a pile of great revenge films over the years. Note the biblical reference turning the other cheek. We do like to see the bad guys get theirs. Wasn't it satisfying to see them get Osama bin Laden? We would love to inflict the pain on those who have harmed us if we could. We all get harmed and mistreated in life, attacked by others, rejected by others, abused by others, People do harm to us. Revenge is the worldly response, right? Our flesh wants to inflict. We, we want to be like the Hatfields and McCoys. You did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you, only worse, and then you'll do worse to me. And 
you end up in a never-ending cycle of violence and hurt. We want to give payback, right? But we're Christians. (laughs) So how should a Christian respond to those who have harmed us? Now, the common Christian advice is forgive and forget. Let me tell you that I think that is terribly unbiblical advice. I don't think God calls us to forgive and forget. I think it does damage when we try to live by that. So what are we called to as Christians? If we're not called to forgive and forget when others harm us, what are we called to? Well, I think the psalm, Psalm 56, gives us a beautiful picture, a beautiful sequence that David works through to help us understand how to respond when others mistreat us. So let's pray and look at this text together. Lord, thank you for how real David is to us. He meets us right where we are in life in the struggles that we face of having others who are against us, who want to do us harm, who are critical of us, who do damage to us. Lord, as we look through the psalm together, may your spirit be teaching us how to respond in a way that would be redemptive, that we might cooperate with your kingdom as you bring life to a dark and painful world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me just say, we've been, we're looking at our third psalm we've looked at so far this summer. As I'm teaching through the psalms, we'll look about, at about ten different psalms this summer. And you may be wondering, why did he pick the psalms he picked? <laughs> well, for a couple of reasons. One is, I wanted to pick different types of psalms so we would see all the different variety in the psalms. And I wanted to pick psalms that were true to our experience so that you would see how the psalms speak to our very life, to our experiences, to the struggles we face in life, so that you will turn to the psalms and find comfort, encouragement, truth, direction, guidance, all those things that God meant for us to find in the psalms. They meet us right where we are. So this psalm begins with a superscription about, again, we don't really know what all this means, choir director, etc., etc. But there's a historical reference. It's a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. That tells us a lot about the context of this psalm. When the Philistines seized David in Gath, he was going through a very extreme low point in his life, perhaps the lowest point in his life. David was raised in a family where he was the eighth son. Remember when Jesse came, or excuse me, Samuel came to Jesse and said, one of your sons I need to anoint king. And he ran all the sons by, and Jesse did not even call David back from the field. Definitely can't be the youngest, the little brat out with the sheep. David experienced rejection in his own home from his own brother later. But he was anointed king by Samuel. And then he killed Goliath. And he was chosen to lead the armies of Israel for a time. 
So things were going well. He was a leader. But then Saul, the king, became jealous, turned on him, set out to kill him. So he has to run for his life. Well, David, where we see in 1 Samuel 21, is running for his life. He's afraid. He doesn't have a weapon or anything because he left empty-handed. So he goes to the priest and he says, do you have any kind of weapon here? And the priest says, the only weapon we have is what you left here. It's the sword of Goliath of Gath, the Philistine that you killed. David says, hey, it's great. I'll take it. So he straps on the sword and he keeps running for his life. But David, in his fear, is so confused, he runs to Achish, king of Gath the king of the Philistines. Now remember, he's got Goliath of Gath's sword strapped on him. And he runs there hoping to hide, and he's seen. He's absolutely terrified. In 1 Samuel 21, we read these words, David rose and fled that day from Saul, went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing of this one as they dance? saying, Saul is slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Verse 12 says this, David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So what we find is a situation where David is terrified. He's afraid. At this low point in his life, he writes this psalm as he's struggling to trust God in a situation where he is being He has been rejected by his family. He's been chased by Saul. And now he's been captured by his enemy, Achish, the Philistine king. Before we jump into the psalm and see how David responds, let's think for a minute about the categories of enemies that he's facing, those who are against him. One category is family. In Psalm 27, verse 10, David says this, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. David has experienced rejection from his own family. Many of us here have experienced pain and rejection from our own families. Might be a parent, might be a sibling, brother, sister, might be a spouse. Maybe another relative who has done us harm, who has done everything from neglect us to inflict on us abuse of various kinds, sexual, emotional, verbal, physical. Later in David's life, even beyond this point, his own wife, Michael, rejects him. His own son, Absalom, tries to kill him and seize the throne from him. David experienced a lot of pain and harm from his own family. Have you? Another category. Saul. Do you have a Saul in your life? Saul was somebody that David had worked with closely, had been chosen. David had been chosen by Saul to, uh, to lead his armies. David had played the harp to calm Saul down when he was disturbed emotionally. David had been a great blessing. David had trusted Saul. And Saul turned on him and betrayed him. Have you had people in your life that you were close to and they betrayed you? 
could be, again, a family member or a friend, a co-worker, somebody who became jealous of you and was out to get you. David writes in the psalm right before this one, Psalm 55, starting in verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it's you, a man my equal, my companion and my intimate friend. We who had sweet fellowship together, we walked in the house of God in the throng. David says the pain's so much greater because it was you were my friend. We walked together, we worshiped together, and you now are against me. Is there a Saul in your life? Someone who betrayed you that you trusted? Or how about an Akish? Someone who's just an enemy. <laughs> they never were a friend. Someone who's just out to get you and there's nothing you can do to make peace. I've been asked sometimes in my life, how come you never went with the nickname Jack? I mean, Jackson is kind of a long name. Why didn't you go with Jack? Well, when I was growing up through elementary school and on up in my small hometown, there was one of my classmates who clearly hated my guts and would do everything he could to get at me and to undermine me. And there's nothing I could do to change his mind. His name was Jack. There was no way I was going to take that name. <laughs> you probably have had Akishes in your life. People who have been against you and there's nothing you could do to change their perspective. And I've had others since who just hate you. <laughs> well, David shows a beautiful pattern of how to deal with these types of people, family, Saul's, Akishes, who were against us. So let's follow the pattern of the psalm as we look through it. He begins this way, Be gracious to me, O God. I know NIV says be merciful, but it's really the word grace. Be gracious to me, O God. What does David do first? He turns to the Lord in prayer. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his struggle, his rejection, he turns to the Lord in prayer. It's so tempting to wallow in our hurt, be angry about what the person has done to us, to think it over and over in our minds and think of what we would love to do to pay them back. But what David does is he turns to the Lord and he cries out for grace, which strikes me as powerful and unusual. Because he turns to the Lord, but he cries for grace. Not for God to deal with the people right away. He begins with grace. Last week we looked at Psalm 51 where David was confessing his sin of adultery and murder. And it began with these words, Be gracious to me, O God. Now he's in a difficult situation and he comes to God and he prays the same prayer. Be gracious to me, O God. Notice what he's saying. Lord, I need you to act in my life. I'm in a difficult situation. I'm experiencing pain and rejection. But I'm coming to you completely on the basis of grace. I need grace just as much as those who have harmed me. 
That's a marvelous attitude. It's a realization that we can't depend on our goodness, on our righteousness, that we're better than our enemies. They're terrible. I've followed you, Lord, but they're bad. No, he doesn't come on that basis. He comes crying out for grace. Lord, I always, when I come into your presence, need grace. Grace recognizes that I'm a sinner too, just as much as those who have harmed me. And I need your grace every moment. So David begins by turning to the Lord in prayer and crying out for grace. Then he moves on to honestly declare his hurts to God. Continuing in verse 1, Man has trampled on me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. For there are many who fight proudly against me. David says, look what they're doing to me. And the words he's using here imply that he's talking about those who have power over him. Achish as a king, Saul as a king. Others who have power over us sometimes oppress us. Squeeze us. That word oppress means to squeeze into a tight place where you have nowhere to turn and you don't know what to do. David says, they're trampling on me. They put me in a place where I'm trapped and I don't have anything to do, anything I know what to do. I don't know where to go. And notice twice in verses 1 and 2, he uses the phrase all day long. I can't get away from it. No matter where I turn, I struggle with the fact that they're out to get me. They're arrogant, they're proud, they're fighting me at every turn. Like my friend who has a boss who is clearly out to get him. No matter what he does, no matter how hard he tries to please his boss, his boss simply wants to get rid of him. And so he's looking over his shoulder all the time, waiting for him to fail, critical, out to get him. Notice David's response is not, oh, oh Lord, they've hurt me, but, but I just need to forgive and forget. I just need to let it go, and so I'm going to pretend like I'm not hurt and act like they never hurt me. Folks, that's not helpful. No, David's very honest about the pain of what others have done to him, and I think that's important if we're going to be real before God and be real before the world around us. We need to be honest about those who have harmed us. Otherwise, we've just become more angry and distant and phony in our Christian walk. No, David is deeply honest about his hurt and his pain before God. Also in verse 5 and 6, he says, All day long they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Here he pictures that they're always looking around the corner just waiting for him to fail so they can nail him. Have you felt that way? somebody, maybe a spouse or someone else is just always critical, just waiting for you to blow it so they can jump on it and hold it against you. And then they collect that over the years. So every time you have a conflict, they have to bring out the whole list of how you've messed up. David says, this is tough. It's hard. They twist what I say. I have to walk on eggshells in my life 
to try to avoid their anger, their rejection even more. It's a terrible way to live. David's honest about it. He honestly declares his hurts to God. But in the midst of all this, step three, he purposely puts his trust in God. He purposely puts his trust in God. There's a refrain with some variation in verses 3 and 4 and verses 10 and 11. Listen to those verses. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere flesh, man, do to me? Verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So David, in the midst of recounting his situation, look what they've done to me, look what people are doing to me, it's hard, I'm rejected, it's painful. He takes a step back and he says, yeah, but when I'm afraid, and notice he is afraid, he's terrified, this is awful, but when I'm afraid, I'm going to put my trust in you. I won't be afraid when I do that. I What can man do to me? He's getting God's perspective on the situation. He's reminding himself that God's there. He's purposefully putting his trust in God. One of the things I most appreciate about this is David is afraid. He is angry. But he's choosing not to live by those feelings. Our culture is so feelings-oriented, isn't it? And we have this idea that has been driven into our minds that if you're not living by your feelings, you're not authentic. You're a hypocrite. That's a lie, folks. Your feelings go up and down and you can feel afraid and you can feel angry and you can feel hurt and yet you can still turn to God and cling to Him in faith and trust Him. Faith is often a victory over those negative feelings. And David makes that choice to purposely put his trust in God in the midst of how he feels. Now this psalm is beautifully constructed. It's a beautiful Hebrew poem. And I wish I had time to just explain all of that to you, how it's constructed. But in English poetry, in our poetry, we tend to have the climax at the end, the main point at the end. We build up to the end and there's the main point. But often, not always, but often in Hebrew poetry, it's constructed in such a way so that the main point is in the center. It's the center line. And this psalm is carefully constructed, a Hebrew poem, where the main point is the center line. Thirteen verses, the center verse is verse 7. Listen to that verse. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. Or, another, or don't let them escape, God. In anger, put down the peoples, O oh God. <laughs> so the center line, the main point of David's whole psalm is this. God, bring justice. Get angry at them. Deal with wickedness. It's a cry for justice. This is the center line of the whole psalm, the main point, and it's the turning point of the psalm where David's attitude really begins to change. He cries out for God to not let them escape. 
to pour out justice on his enemies, to be angry at them and act in anger. That sounds pretty unchristian, doesn't it? What happened to turn the other cheek? What happened to forgive and forget? (laughs) It seems pretty unchristian, but I think this is exactly where we need to be when others have harmed us. And I believe this verse is the key for us to be able to deal effectively with God when others have harmed us, abused us, caused us harm. We were created with a deep longing for justice, for wickedness to be dealt with, for righteousness to win. That's a big part of who we are as human beings. And either we just try to ignore that, which does no good, forgive and forget, (laughs) or in anger, we try to pay the person back. Fine, that's the way they're going to be. I'll never talk to them again. Or we find some other way to punish them in response, to take vengeance in our own hands. Or... We cry out for justice, but leave it in God's hands, which is exactly what David does here. He leaves justice in God's hands. Forgiveness doesn't mean we forget the hurt. It means we give up payback. We decide not to take revenge ourselves, but we give it to God and trust Him to bring it in His way and His timing. Dr. Dan Allender in his book Bold Love says this, Vengeance at times can be illegitimate, but it is not inherently wrong. Vengeance is part of the character of God and is not in contradiction with his love and mercy. Revenge involves a desire for justice. It is the intense wish to see ugliness destroyed, wrongs righted, and beauty restored. It is as inherent to the human soul as is a desire for loveliness. I don't know if you've ever really looked closely at a verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Romans 12, verse 19, listen to this. Never take your own revenge. Okay? We are never to take our own revenge. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a New Testament book, folks. That's Romans. (laughs) And Paul there is saying, Never take your own revenge. That is always wrong. We should never try to pay people back for the harm they've done us, ourselves. But notice what he says. He says, instead, leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for God to deal with the person, to bring justice, to bring righteousness, to deal with the harm that's been done. If you step in and try to pay the person back, you are in the way of God. We need to step back and let God deal with the person still desiring vengeance. Lord, bring justice. Deal with this person's wickedness. 
I think it's okay to desire that. But I think also a key to understanding forgiveness is to also desire redemption for the person. Lord, deal with their wickedness and bring them to their knees so they will submit to you and find grace in you. The same grace that we had to find because of our sin. That, I think, is a godly way to approach it when others harm us. Dan Allender again recounts this story. It is my opinion that our final vengeance, no matter how well it has been thought through or planned, in other words, if we take revenge in our own hands, would never be enough to cover every offense. I asked one enraged victim of a spousal affair what she would do to her husband if she could make him pay. She said, I would scream at him for hours and then I would shoot him. I told her she was far more lenient and generous than God would be. She had never read Isaiah 25, so I asked her if she would be willing to let him lie face down in his dung, slowly drown as he tries to swim his way out, and then be trampled underfoot by teams of horses. Isaiah 25. She was disgusted with my suggestion and said outright that I was a strange and violent man. (laughs) When I argued that I was merely reflecting the essence of what God would eventually do to all those whose citizenship is with Moab, she was startled and miffed. Leave room for the wrath of God because God's far better at it than we could ever be. We are to leave it in his hands, desire vengeance, but also desire that God would bring redemption to the person's life. And maybe that's the greatest sign that you have really come to forgiveness. We are to forgive, but not to forget. We are to forgive and desire justice, but also desire that God would bring healing, reconciliation, brokenness in your relationship because we need grace just as much as they do. Now because David was willing to be honest with God, this is what they're doing to me and cry out for vengeance. God, deal with their wickedness. I think that allowed him to begin to see God's hand at work in the midst of his situation. His situation hasn't changed, but his perspective has changed dramatically in the rest of the psalm. He's got a whole different perspective on what's going on in his life. Before, all he saw was the harm that others were doing to him. But now, he sees how God is at work in the midst of the harm. So he's able to look for the hand of God at work. That's step five. Notice verse eight. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. I know NIV says, write my tears on your scroll. There's a little confusion about what the word means there, but either way, David is acknowledging that God is in this and he's compassionate and cares about my hurts. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? David now sees that God is in it and that 
God is for him and cares about every tear. Every tear you've ever cried in your pain. God has acknowledged, taken account of, kept in his bottle, written on his scroll. No tear is wasted with God. He is compassionate and caring, and David is recognizing that now. No matter what your pain is, God knows, understands, and cares. He feels it with you. And nothing is wasted in his great plan of salvation. Then in verse 9, David says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Now, wait a minute, David. You're in a terrible situation. Everybody's out to get you. You're completely alone. You've been captured. You could be killed. Life's rough. But his perspective has changed and he knows God is for me. What a wonderful statement of faith. A reminder that God has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten me in the midst of the rejection you may feel, though you may feel complete rejection by people, yet God cares for you. This I know, he declares. God is for me. David didn't even have the cross to look back to like we do, but the cross is proof forever, no matter what you're going through. If God would send his son to die for you so that you might have life forever and have the Holy Spirit to live inside you, and have the hope of heaven, and I could go on and on. If God would do all that for you, you can know, no matter how painful it might be, this I know, that God is for me. Verse 12 and 13, David ends this psalm by saying, Your vows are binding on me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Notice that's past tense. You have delivered my soul from death. Indeed, my feet from stumbling so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Wait, David, you're still in a mess. But David is now so confident in God that he puts it in the past tense. I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but you're at work, so I'm going to trust that whatever happens to my body, you have delivered my soul from death. It's as good as done. You see, David's perspective has changed. He's been able to see that God is in the midst of what's going on, in his hurt, in his harm, in his abuse, in his rejection. And he's confident that God will do what is best. Now, let me just say as a sidelight, all of us should follow David's example. If you've been harmed by other people, you should get his perspective and see God's hand in it and trust him with it. But that doesn't mean that trusting God means you allow the abuse to go on. If you're in an abusive, difficult situation, I think trusting God is often taking the step to call the police, to separate for a time. Again, working for redemption, but it's loving, it's the right thing to do to not... Let an evil person continue in their wickedness. But it's the right thing to do, the loving thing to do, to put a stop to it. But in this psalm, we see that we can move from fear and anger to trust. If we will take it to God and get his perspective on the harm 
that has been done to us. One final note. Think about this whole psalm. We kind of picked it apart, but as you think, he begins by saying, be gracious, God. Then he says, but it's so hard. Look what they're doing. But I'm going to trust you. But they're lurking. They're after me. Bring vengeance on them, God, but it's still hard and I'm in pain. I'm trying to trust God, but it's still difficult. And in fact, if you look back in 1 Samuel 21, you'll find right after he wrote the psalm of trust, David panicked. And it says he acted like a madman to escape from King Achish. What does that tell us? Trusting God is a process. Forgiving others is a process. It's not a one-time deal. It's a struggle. And you may go back and forth struggling to really trust him with how others have harmed you, but keep struggling. Keep giving it to God. Keep giving your hurts to him, not taking revenge in your own hands, but getting his perspective on your life and realize even in the midst of the struggle, God will still be with you. Though others will continue to be against you, we can say with David, this I know, that God is for me. Can you say that with conviction? Say it with me. This I know that God is for me. Let's pray. Thank you for the truth of that, God. We forget it so easily when we're hurting, when others have harmed us. But help us to be people that by faith turn to you in the midst of the pain and by faith claim the truth that we know that you are with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.